good. So I was, thank you. I, I was asked to speak on Simeon's song, and basically this wasn't something I'd really thought about or looked at before, but I discovered as I went through history, a lot of people in the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, and every other established church has spent an awful lot of time thinking about Simeon's prayer. It just seems to have somehow bypassed the evangelicals. Um, so, and this is uh, one of many classical paintings you can find from the Dutch masters on the subject. And I'm just going to read through the text first of all, and then after that we shall go through each, you know, small section of verses. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So, when we read the first little bit of this section, we just read over it, you know, it just says, Simeon was a righteous, devout man. But to a first century Jew, or even an Orthodox Jew today, that means something completely different. To say he was a righteous man is to say he was Sadek, that is, someone who is very special in their understanding. It's a, a term that is not used lightly. It's used of biblical figures, and it's used of certain figures in Judaism, but it's not anyone who is Sadiq. We see it applied to Noah. Noah was a completely, that is, Sadiq, righteous man in his generation. And the, those letters, that implication of Sadiq, turns up in names like Melchizedek, the high priest and king of Jerusalem, to whom Abraham gave honor, and Zadok, Zidok, the high priest of David. And these name associations would not have been lost on first century devout Jewish believers. Simeon, a Sadiq, was there in the temple in Jerusalem, standing on the very same hill as Melchizedek had been king and priest thousands of years before, standing in the very same 
hill where David's son Samson had built a temple that David had been commissioned to collect the, the products to build, but was considered because he was a man with blood in his hands, this wasn't holy enough to build himself. And so there's a whole lot going on here that, that passes us by because we just see one word and speed read on to the next one. And when we speed read on to the next word, we see it's quasid. That's to say a devout man. Now, we don't talk about devout people a whole lot in our present generation for some reason. But that word means pious, it means godly. If you're into the King James Version, it's translated quite often as saint. Holy, kind, merciful. Again, what they're saying is Simeon was an exceptionally holy, righteous, devout, good person and recognized as such. And if we move on from that, we see that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when we see the word waiting, you know, what comes to me is um, from Psalm 40, I will wait patiently for the Lord. And for those of you who have ever seen the videos of U2 closing their rock concerts, every time from Red Rock on, they used to close their concerts with people singing that, that hymn, I waited patiently for the Lord. The idea of waiting is something that somehow gets left behind in a lot of instant fix spirituality. We want it all and we want it now to quote the rock song. It's not, we don't, we're not into waiting. It's not, it's not part of the, uh, of the modern uh, church's um, list of attributes. The idea of waiting patiently for something from God somehow gets, gets left out. And we read that he was waiting for the consolation, which can be translated in other versions, comfort of Israel. And again, for me, that would bring me to Isaiah 40. And for many people who were listening, it would bring them to Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So here we are in the temple, in Jerusalem, with a man who was waiting for that comfort, who had gone there to wait for it. And we can think even of Handel's Messiah, if you want to go and listen to the, the baritone singing, comfort, comfort ye my people. This concept of comfort, of long-awaited comfort, so Simeon was waiting to see a Messiah who would bring that comfort, that consolation, that care, who would fulfill the longing of a nation that was oppressed and the longing of those generations of devout people, men and women who'd gone before. This was a long wait. This was a hope. This was something that was dearly treasured. This was something that people had died for, the hope, the consolation. This is something that had caused the Jews in Jerusalem to refuse to bow to their Greek overlords or their Roman overlords. They were waiting. They were seeking the comfort of Jerusalem. And Simeon, we see from this that he was an old man, but that the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
It's kind of funny that the Orthodox and the Catholics and the High Anglicans, they're all into this, but the Pentecostals don't seem to get into it. Here's someone who the Holy Spirit was upon. We're seeing throughout Luke's Gospel and then Luke wrote Acts. This is, it talks about the Holy Spirit. It's his, Luke, who was a Gentile, is seeing the Holy Spirit moving, not just at Pentecost and after Pentecost, he's seeing it moving from the very beginning. And here we have the Holy Spirit being upon this old man. And it doesn't sound like it came upon him the week before he turned up in the temple. He had lived this. He had lived this life of spiritual communion with God through the Holy Spirit. And he had been told that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or if you were using a Jewish translation of the Bible, that is to say, the Messiah of Adonai. He was waiting to see the Messiah. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indeed was poured out on all flesh, as prophesied by Joel, and that's the verses that are quoted when we read Acts 2. But before that, we see the Holy Spirit on people, particularly in this case, Simeon. And it looks like Simeon had faithfully held on to this promise given to him the Holy Spirit from a long time earlier, hence the waiting. He had been waiting and waiting and waiting. But one of the things you have to do with waiting is you have to know when to stop waiting and when to act. There's many people don't wait, and then there's people who don't act. They get so good at waiting, they're not ready to stop waiting. And in your life, you have to realize when it's time to wait. And when it's time that the waiting is over, you have waited. You've done your waiting. And it's actually scary to go from waiting to acting. In some ways, once you get into waiting, it's easy to wait. You're, you're good at it, you know. But to go from waiting to actually making that move, to actually making that change in your life, to actually taking that decision, and there's lots of people who, who don't. They just keep waiting, and God promised them something. But there's, there's, there's the waiting, and there's the moving into the promise. And so he was ready to act at the right time, which showed he had discernment as well as patience. Now, I said many traditions are, are into, this, into this verse. And so when we actually go into, go into the actual prayer itself, you know, there's the bit that says, if you're in the King James Version, now you may dis now dismiss your servant. And that's why it's called in Latin, nunc dimittis. Nunc now dimittis, dismiss. And the prayer has been used by the Orthodox, Catholic, and Anglican religious communities of monks and nuns for their vespers for centuries. When they're going to bed at night, this is what they sing. Now, you can dismiss us now, God, and if we die in the night, we've been dismissed. Yeah? And so that's why I'm saying this is repeated by people in those communities, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 the, it's what they say before they go to bed. It's what they sleep on. It's that, it's that sense of completeness, yeah? So Lord Adonai, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now salvation, again, if you're in Hebrew, that's Yeshua. This is a word play. Your eyes, my eyes have seen Yeshua. My eyes have seen what we would call Joshua, which is, in, if you translate it into Greek, Jesus. So we, he is, in one sense, 
you know, he's, 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 it's not just, he didn't know the name of the baby. He's just saying, I've seen Yeshua. I've seen salvation. The salvation that you have, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Mary had been told to name the baby Yeshua. That's what we would say Joshua or Jesus in Greek. And Simeon is confirming this identity. He's confirming even to Mary that this is the right name. This is, this is who and what this child is. Simeon's confirming the identity of the baby who's to be the savior of his people, the fulfillment of the hope of Israel the fulfillment of the Jewish hope. Now, how people interpreted that hope, there are those who interpret it in a very political sense, there are those who interpret it in a very mystical sense, but whatever sense you're interpreting it, this is who was there. But Simeon, interestingly, was seeing beyond those nationalistic Jewish identity issues to see that all people would be blessed by Yeshua, by Jesus, Jews and Gentiles that this blessing was much greater than a, a national blessing, much greater than a, you know, a, 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 a sort of Che Guevara poster man for a revolution. That was not, I mean, I've done the liberation theology stuff, you know, that, that's not what this is about, you know? It's not about um, the glorious revolution, it's about something far bigger than that. It's about a complete turning upside down of heaven and earth to be, make it the right way up again. So this, this hope had been translated into something that wasn't just a national hope. It was a hope for everybody. The salvation would bring glory to Israel, who Simeon is calling, causing your people, as in the people of Adonai, as in the Lord's people. And this scripture, in some senses, and I don't want to get into the controversies of it, but it contradicts replacement theology. Replacement theology has been very popular since the days of St. Augustine. It is, you've all these blessings that were given to the Jewish people, but now we're the church, we're the new Jewish people, we're the new chosen people, so we get all those blessings. Now, as Derek Prince points out, Christians are very good at taking all the blessings that were given to the Jewish people, but they seem to leave behind all the curses that were given to them, you know? They're very selective in... <laughs> And this has gone through history. You can go through Augustine, you can go through, you know, Luther, you can go all the way to Wesley. And, and there's this idea of, well, we'll take all these blessings and we'll put them in our bag and bring them off to our church. But that's actually, um, it's not a theology, shall I say, that I'm comfortable with. And without getting into present controversies in the world, or you can get into them if you want, part of the conflict within Christianity is because of this historical replacement. And interestingly, even in the Catholic Church, John Paul II, who had basically grown up with the Holocaust that happened in Poland, he backtracked on all of this stuff. Um, that, that they even said that the Jewish people, we, this was the Catholics saying, we don't go to convert the Jewish people. We don't send missions to them they have to come into the fullness of what they already believe. Not, it's not like sending missionaries to China. It's a very different issue because these people are the people from whom we got our belief system. And I think without going into the controversy, you have to realize this is where the, all of our belief system come from. He is the fulfillment of that in this verse. 
we're seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel, but for all people. Now, how you work that out in your view of politics, reality, the world, I leave that up to each individual, but you cannot ignore that if I'm expounding on these verses, this is what Simeon, a Siddiq, a holy Jew, a righteous man, a devout man who spent his time in the temple for years waiting to see the Messiah, is realizing that this is about the Jewish people, but it's about something much bigger. It's about all of us. And really, this is a short passage. I'm going to give people time to think and to reflect on it. But I just want to expound on really what we learn from it in some ways. And basically, what we learn from it is that there's a lot more in some of these short passages than we'll ever realize. And we see in the midst of this that Mary and Joseph, who come with two little doves to sacrifice, without getting into the sacrifices, there's the sacrifices for the purification after having a baby 40 days that Mary's doing. There's the dedication of the baby at the temple. You can go into all your discussions as to what was going on there. The child is circumcised when they're, whatever, eight days old or whatever. But this is, this is the fulfillment and the cleansing. And also, in, in Old Testament belief, every firstborn male was dedicated to the Lord and had to be redeemed. So they were going with their sacrifice, and they couldn't afford a lamb because they were too poor. So they were coming with two doves, and you make a contribution to the temple to buy back your child from God. So they were engaging in that process of redeeming, if you like, the Redeemer. And none of this would be lost on a first-century Jewish audience, the, the complexity, the hope, the fulfillment, the paradoxes of it. But there they were, redeeming back the Redeemer of the nation, that He was going under the law in order to fulfill the law. Does that make sense? That even Jesus as a baby was coming as a Jew, fulfilling all the requirements to be righteous in every way, but in order to move beyond that. And this was the first step, if you like, in that fulfillment of the law. It's hard for us to see that. Well, the second step after circumcision, it's the first step where we see it in, in this public arena in the temple, the same temple as he comes back to at the age of 12, the same temple as he overturns the money changers and basically goes into a political head-on collision with the high priest and his family who controlled. Basically, the high priest and his family, they basically ran a religious protection racket. They, they owned all those money changers' tables. They were, they were getting a cut on everything. And it's not just a spiritual conflict. This was a conflict between people who turned God into business, who turned a house of prayer into a den of thieves not just a marketplace, but a den, and they were the thieves. They were the big thieves. You know, you know the, the policeman who gets your money, he doesn't keep all of it at the side of the road, my friend. <laughs> it goes up the system, you know? But they were the guys at the top of the system. And those were the people that Jesus was going to confront. And the, the, in one sense, the clock to his death started from his birth. But in another sense, you know, the, 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 last, the last sweep of the hand 
happened when he went into the temple. And so this, this is his first time in the temple. And when Jesus is in the temple, he is submitting himself through his parents, through their decision, through their devoutness to the law in order that the law would be fulfilled and in order that beyond that, he would be redeemed to be a redeemer. Okay? And so what we're seeing is his father and his mother are marveling about what is said to them. This is way above their pay grade. They're not highly educated people. They're not scholars. They're very devout people. And I think that's something that's very important to, to realize. There's many people you meet in life who don't have degrees in theology, but they know God. The original, if you read the Desert Fathers, the word theologian, the theologo was someone who knew God, not someone who knew about God. <laughs> and, and so the, they are people who, despite their humble background, were devout. They knew God. They were meeting Simeon, who was an old man. And though I'm not going into it, Anna the prophetess was there as well of this passage. He was 105 years old approximately and had spent most of her life in the temple as a prophet. Again, I sometimes wonder why, you know, we don't, this doesn't fit neatly into our theology if you think that, you know, the Spirit descended and, and nothing happened before Pentecost. The reality is that this was a woman who spent 80 years of her life or more in the, in the temple, fasting, praying, day and night. And again, you know, there's, in traditional church belief, there's a belief that Simeon he did this, went out home and died, you know, immediately. And probably the same for Anna. The, the belief is that they had done what they came to do. That they, that they had complete fulfillment in their old age and what they'd seen. So Simeon blesses them and says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And you can go on, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The other little things put in brackets, we'll come back to that. So, what basically, when you take that bit, this child has been appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. As I said, Jesus was going to turn Israel right way up, or upside down, from their, from their you know, perspective. And he's going to expose what people thought, in other words, what's deep in people's hearts what's deep in the hearts of the religious establishment in particular, who were playing very complex political games and who were in one sense, for the devout believers, I mean, for, the, for many, many people, the, the, the high priest was, was one of a very politicized Sadducean sect. And for most people, they were very unhappy with, with the fact that these guys were, were running the show and it turned it into a into a business. So Jesus was going to turn this upside down, but also we see in the middle, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And so here we're seeing that Mary would suffer great grief, as indeed Jesus would, because of this conflict. And we even see this from the very beginning, you know, of, of, the, of the scriptures where it talks about in, in the gospels, you know, where you've got you know, the, the three kings that you get on the Christmas cards coming with their gifts. And, you know, you have gold and frankincense and, and myrrh, and you sing, you know, songs about it, and, you know, and you end up with, you know, the line in one of the famous Christmas carols, 
and for time of burying, virginicum. Yeah? You've got myrrh from the very beginning to anoint a body in death being given. It's a funny gift to give a baby. You know, it's like giving a baby a coffin. Yeah? So from the very beginning, what's very not subtly hinted at in this verse, Mary would suffer great, de great grief, okay? That a sword would pierce through your own soul. Even the imagery of your very inner being will be torn apart, will be pierced. And so there's nothing, there's, in one sense, there's nothing evolutionary in, in biblical thought. You know, you go back to the book of Job, which some would say was one of the first books written in the Bible, and it's saying, and again, you know, you get the handle as Messiah, no worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. A belief in the resurrection. It's not that it evolved and gradually people thought, and then wouldn't it be nice, and we end up with a belief. From the very beginning, from the very beginning of the story in Genesis, there's there. From the very beginning in the story of, I mean, Mary is here at this point to use C.S. Lewis's term, a daughter of Eve. You go back to the very beginning in Genesis, and it is saying about the snake that you will, you know, about the snake striking his heel, that is the seed of the first Eve, and that he would crush Satan's head. So this piercing is there from the very beginning. And all of Scripture, to use one modern thinker's term, it's the world's first hyperlinked text. All of it links in a most peculiar way that those who want to can see and those who don't want to aren't meant to see. And it's not that it's some mystical hidden truth. It's there for those to look for who seek, seek to search it out. And, you know, God doesn't cast his pearl before swine. People have to go looking to find sometimes. But within it, there's the understanding that all of Scripture is God-breathed, and in being God-breathed, that breath is recognizable from the beginning to the end. It's, it's one story. It's, it's his story. So we're seeing the suggestion here of not just Mary's pain, but of the suffering of the Christ. Ooh. Ha, right. So, as we sort of bring this whole thing together, what are we learning from Simeon? And that it is that patient, faithful waiting is a very powerful testimony of itself. You know, those who faithfully hold on to their faith in a difficult situation, those who hold on to something God has promised them, those who won't give up on a wayward child or won't give up on a dream or won't give up 
on a principle of what is right, but are prepared to wait. I waited patiently on the Lord. You know, he stooped and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the miry pit, out of the, out of the hole in the ground, basically. But some of that waiting is in the hole in the ground. And I think we have to realize that waiting is a very important spiritual life skill. And, you know, it's like, I like coffee, but I drive more than I because I go and get the coffee and I grind it up and I put it in a little pot and put it in the... I mean, you could just go and get an S-coffee and dump it in and get a kettle, but you're not going to get the same thing at the end, you know? Um, I like to be able to wait because it's worth waiting for. And the waiting in itself is a process. You're doing all this grinding. It's, it's a process. And I think that that is a spiritual process in itself. The waiting does something to you. So don't be afraid to wait. Equally, you have to know when the waiting is over, but you've also to know when it's not over. And you've got to hold on to what it is you're waiting for. And it's not my job to tell you what each of you are waiting for. But it is my job to encourage you that whatever you're waiting for, it's worth waiting for. And that it's not that God has overlooked you, but God is with you in your waiting. The Holy Spirit didn't just come on Simeon that morning. The Holy Spirit was with Simeon for a long time, from when he gave him the message. Simeon was living in the Spirit, which sounds great if you're a Pentecostal, but he was in the Spirit waiting. He wasn't doing a whole pile. But like Anna the prophetess, she was going up there fasting in the temple for years, for decades. But they were fulfilled in every way in what they experienced in that one short morning. So, the next thing that we realize with Simeon is that he was in communication with the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit was in communication with Simeon, and he, he was listening. I mean, yeah, the Holy Spirit can shout when you're doing something really stupid, but as a general rule, there is a need to listen. And there's a need to shut out the other noise to do that. And the world we're living in, I'm not saying it was ever easy, but it's become more difficult because we're in overload information feed all the time. Everything is coming at us all the time. It's like the difference between having a horse and cart and, the diff and driving around Kampala today. hundred years ago, things were not coming at the same speed at people. And there's just so much coming at you that it's very difficult to filter it. It's very difficult to weigh it. It's very difficult to say, is this truth? Is this error? But what you do have to do is listen, because if you don't listen, you won't even know what you're waiting for. And you'll be rushing around in circles or off in the wrong direction. And going in the wrong direction is kind of worse than going nowhere because you've got to turn around and go all the way back again. 
So I think it's really important to understand that we have to listen. And when you do get something and you check it with people, you do reality checks, you don't just, well, God told me this. That's why we're a community of believers. You know, no man or no woman is an island in this. But when we do have something that we really believe God has said, we hold on to it, we remember it, we write it down, and then when the time comes, we act on it. And also, we should be thankful to God that, that it has happened. You know, it's not, it's not just, oh, that happened after all, what a wonderful coincidence. We don't, we don't, we're not living in, a, in a, a world of Brownian motion of chaos. We're living in a world, God ordained a world of order. The lords of chaos would want us to live in a world of chaos. But God ordained a world of order. And from the very beginning, the commission given to Adam and Eve, a word that's misinterpreted, subdue the earth, was to bring the earth into order. It, was, it wasn't to go and chop everything down, but it was going to, to turn something into a garden. There's a, there's a joke about an old man in an English village who was there in his garden one day, and he was doing a wonderful job. And, you know, the vicar comes along and looks over the fence and says, John, that's a lovely garden that you and the Lord have made. And John said, yeah, but you should have seen it when I left it to the Lord on his own. You know, <laughs> the reality is that God wants us to be part. Our commission is to be part of doing something. The very, the, the very first commission, and my theology is not that God left, created chaos. Chaos grew out of somewhere else. God created a God of order. And I think that we are brought into, we're brought into and re-brought into in Christ, but our original commission, the commission of Adam and Eve, was to bring order to the earth. Now, how you work that out in the 21st century and how your theology works it out and your ecology works it out, that's up for each individual. But we, we deal with a God of balance, a God of order, a God where things were placed in a way that should be sustainable and should be beautiful. So, we need to hold on to what the Holy Spirit said to us and be ready to act on it. Um, and I think you cannot avoid this message, both of Simeon and of Anna, who you can read of afterwards. And that is that in Christ, death can be met with peace, confidence, and a sense of fulfillment. And we should never, we have all seen old people who are faithful, dying in their faith. I remember my grandfather was a hundred and he decided it was time to die. He said, all these young people of 70 are dying and I don't know anybody anymore. And these very devout men came and knocked on the door because we lived in this little country town in Ireland. They came visiting and they'd come to pray for him because he was sick and they went around praying for the sick. To which he told my mother, get these men out of here. Do they not know that I'm meant to be dying? You know? um, and he went into renal failure and sailed off on the good ship SS Urea where it just increases its levels and you get sleepy and he died. 
He was 100 years old. He'd fulfill, you know, and we, there are many people who have a life of fulfillment, but Simeon was seeing that in an incredible way. And so he'd lived with hope, but his hope was fulfilled, not in some future by and by, but in, in, in this world. He had seen the fulfillment. And many of us, we may not see the fulfillment of everything God has shown us in our lifetime, but whether you see it in your lifetime or not, you know you live with a God who brings all things to fulfillment. At the end of day, all things will be brought to closure. And all things will be brought into His order, as was originally intended. And we will be with Him in that fulfilled reality for all of existence. So I think we should not shy away from the reality that people die but that there is a good death. There is a, there's a death that is fulfilled. There's a death where, like we said at the beginning, nunc dimittis, now dismiss. Now dismiss your servant. That you have fulfilled what you felt needed to be fulfilled. So I think it's, it's important to have a worldview that encompasses death as part of life and encompasses the understanding that there is a good death. I'm not saying there isn't suffering, there isn't pain, there isn't horrible things happening to people, but there is also many people who can transition to the next life having fulfilled what was placed on their hearts. And I think a lot of life should be about seeking the peace that you're not getting near the end of your life with a whole lot of unfulfilled stuff, a whole lot of unforgiven people, a whole lot of unprocessed pain. It's much better to, you know, do the housework every day than let it all pile up spiritually. And yes, you can say, but the Lord will come back, perhaps, in my life. But you know, there's an American bumper sticker, sticker that says, Jesus is coming back. Quick, guys, look busy. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's not an excuse for not working at what you're meant to be doing. That ongoing, everyday work continues now. Whatever your um, end game. Yeah? Now, I would like people to go into a time of discussion. And I put up some questions. And you can choose to ponder these on your own, or you can choose to get together. Maybe just sit for yourself for a few minutes, then come together and discuss them. But what does fulfillment look like to me? And sometimes that's a, a difficult question because you're, you're taking everyone else's views of what success, fulfillment, achievement look like. But what does fulfillment look like to me? And what would I want to see happen in my life before my death? And not written up there, but implied is, and what steps do I need to take today, tomorrow, for that to happen? You know, if your idea of, you know, when I die, I want all my children around me at the bedside, is your idea. 
Well, you need to start investing in your relationship when they're this age, not when they're 40. You know, not when they've got their own lives. You know, it's like that Cat Stevens song, you know, song Father and Son. You don't want to be at that point where you didn't understand each other when you were young, and then when it gets older, that distance is still too big to breach. Yeah? So, and then the next thing that I think we should look for is what has the Holy Spirit said to me in the past? What promises have I been given? What hope have I been given? And what have I done with that? Have I put it in a safe place? Have I become disillusioned? Have I let it go? And for anybody who's spent some time living a life of faith, there's been things that have been fulfilled, things that have not been fulfilled, things that you have to take a reality check and say, well, did God really say? But then be careful that you're not just listening to the snake. Did God really say? You know, and sometimes you need to not just keep it to yourself. You need to be accountable. You need to speak to other people so you know, they can do a reality check. Um, and am I still holding on to that word or those words with expectation, with hope, with patience, as Simeon did? Oh, there's little people coming in. So I would like people to just take some time to reflect on those things themselves. And after they've reflected on them, maybe to come into a, a group or find someone you can talk to, if there's something you feel you want to share, if there's things that you want to talk to the leadership about, I'm here, Monica's here, other people are here, he can pray for you. But what I'm trying to bring out from the story of Simeon and his prayer is that hope sometimes is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And to live in hope is a lifestyle choice. It's not just something that some days you're hopeful and some days you're not. It's a very deliberate process. And that living in the Spirit is also a choice. It's not just you wake up and this morning you feel God's close to you, therefore I'm in the Spirit, and tomorrow He isn't, therefore the Spirit's gone someplace else. Usually it's you've gone someplace else or something has happened in the, the circumstances. But you need to live in hopeful expectation because we do have a great hope. Thank you.